Just yeah. going to apologize uh, if there's any bone crunching audio uh, on the track. That's our bear. That's our that's our bear, and by bear we mean whip it. Um, he's we're we're not going to stop him because there was thunder earlier today, and he's had a very stressful day. So we're just going to let him be. And if we get a bit of scrunch on the audio, sorry. Good timing, Ellie. <laughs> <laughs> That's the wrong one, isn't it? Hello and welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball, where I'm not having fun anymore and it's all Phil Collins's fault. <laughs> this is, uh, this is the podcast where, uh, I, Fox Lee, she, her, and... I tell Lee, he, him. Uh, watch all of the Disney Animated Canon movies in sequence and get... Very mad at Phil Collins, he, him, for being a twat who won't stop telling us literally what's on the characters' minds at every given moment. So, we watched 2003's Brother Bear, a.k.a. Tarzan 3. <laughs> we watched Brother Bear, a.k.a. The Lion King, three and a half. <laughs> a.k.a. Tarzan, one and a half. We watched Brother Bear, a.k.a. Phil Collins strikes again because as a society, we have not found a way to stop him. We watched Brother Bear, aka Pocahontas, but without any of that dumb girl shit. We watched Brother Bear, aka Ethnic is Ethnic, right? (laughs) (laughs) 2003, but before I can go in on Phil Collins and what he has done to me personally, we must recover (laughs) the plot in 60 seconds. Fox, the floor is going to be yours, and your time starts now. Okay, this is a story about a young, I'm going to say, First Nations of some kind, a man named Kenai, who has an older brother who's kind of cool, and a middle brother who's kind of a dickhead. Uh, He makes a terrible mistake, which costs his older brother his life, uh, and is is, uh, made to understand the gravity of his mistake by being transformed into a bear to learn an important life lesson. Unfortunately, this leaves his middle brother uh, thinking that he has in fact been killed by a bear, so he's now also being hunted by his middle brother. Uh, To learn this tough life lesson, it falls upon him to save and nurture a baby bear, uh, who is orphaned because, you'll never guess, he killed its mother. This is not a spoiler, you'll work it out in the first, like, five fucking minutes. Uh, anyway, he, stop me if you've heard this one before, but he learns an important life lesson. Uh, and in the end, everything is okay, and he doesn't get killed by his brother. The end? Yeah, that's, that's your minute. Yeah, I mean, it's not a good summary, but that's okay, it's not a good story. Now, before we go any further into previous relationships in the double take, I want to put my hand up and say I actually, I did some of the readings on this one. (laughs) Rather than just shoot from the hip on some of the subject material here, I did do a quick Google Scholar search for Brother Bear, thinking, yeah, well, what am I going to find? Turns out I found a 2013 undergraduate paper by uh, Tali M. Schroeder of the Oglethorpe Journey of Undergraduate Research. Now, bear in mind, uh, this is undergraduate research. This This is the stuff that you would do... Uh, when you're not like a full-time researcher. This is definitely... This is... uh, Undergrad is you don't have your first degree yet. Yeah. And it is mostly a summary of existing research. But it's got a lot of citations. It's got a bibliography. And chasing those rabbits down their holes, I didn't find anything that leapt out as me as this was probably written by an idiot or a racist. Now, the name you gave of that journal... uh, is that a First Nations no. uh, nationality that I recognize? Okay. No, no, no. It's uh, it's a university in Oglethorpe. I don't even okay, know where that is. Oglethorpe. Fair enough. Yep. So there is going to be some information that I'm going to bring in, and if you wonder where I'm saying, like, well, I got in the paper this. That's that's my citation. There is my point. Um, it could be that I'm working off bad foundations, in which case, please feel free to point that out to me. I had half okay. an hour to do this. <laughs> well, I'm probably going to say some uh, some much dumber stuff because i'm just sort of going off instinct and 
uh, having a deeply cynical distrust of Disney at this point. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. I'm sure Talon can correct me from the research if necessary. What I will we'll say from there. on that front is the paper is generally positive about this movie's depiction of Inuit life and practices. So that's nice. Um, based on that, I figured to give the movie the benefit of the doubt. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, prior relationships. Um, this is 2003. We'd just turned 20 and not noticed this movie came out in the theaters. <laughs> I, 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 I feel like I have a memory of seeing it in a theater. Oh, that must have been rough. I, I think we may have seen this and just kind of forgotten about it. Maybe it left so little impression, which yeah. I think is very appropriate for this about movie. right. I mean, all that I learned on the rewatch is I find this movie more irritating than I remember, so... <laughs> Can't have been good for it in the long run. Mm -hmm. uh, anything in the double take? Anything that you think... Wait, you just did that. You literally just said that. On the rewatch, this is all I learned. <laughs> yeah, moving on. <laughs> Next up, we have the Yikes Door slash the product of its time. Uh, this movie has a shitload of problems. Most of them are not related to its handling of cultural stuff. Yeah. From what I can tell. Yes. It seems to be... Uh, you remember I talked about, uh, I feel like Pocahontas is trying to be respectful and just fucked it up in exactly the way that a massive corporation run by white Americans would do such a thing. Um, this doesn't have the imposition of a bunch of white people coming into it and a really questionable treatment of historical stuff and mixed messaging and all of that problematic shit is just absent because it's just a story entirely about people from this culture. Except the ones who are bears, who are very much just modern day Americans. His brothers have a kind of toxic masculinity about them, like... The entire relationship of the brothers appears to be mostly about bullying one another. At least with the, the, the middle brother and the younger brother anyway. Older brother is... is He's cool. A counterpoint. Well, that's the whole point. Like, he's the one who's actually matured. And the other two are still working on it. And by working on it, we mean really gross toxic masculinity nonsense. Just all up-ins. Mm -hmm. Which isn't really yikes store content because the whole point is that this it, look these are their character flaws here they are just writ large for you immediately very obviously which is going to be a recurring theme in this movie it is not subtle about anything ever the there is also one minor yikes in all of this which like, th this is a matter of... Because I'm, I'm hyper-attuned to the ways that Disney is extremely Protestant. And I don't know, and the paper didn't give me a good handle on this, about the specific origin point of the Shaman's Totem. Because it seems that if he's given the Totem of a Bear and then gets later on, commits an act which makes it justifiable to turn him into a bear, there's a certain element of foresight and plan that that implies. That the spirits knew that he would commit a sin that would justify him becoming the thing that they said he would all along. And that has a very strong Christian, Protestant, predestination, Calvinist kind of thing to me. I don't know that it's quite so clairvoyant as that. I don't think it's, you got a bear because we knew you were going to need to be turned into a bear. But it's very, like, they, once again, they're not subtle about this. They state at multiple points that this is like a sort of predestination. Predestination. You live by your spirit. That is how you will become a man. That is how you will find your true self. They, like, I don't know if that's authentic or not. Yes. I found it very unfortunate that, like, to me, because I am extremely in the fuck destiny camp. Uh, yeah. It read to me as, isn't it convenient that obeying your preordained destiny also just meshes with not being a fuck? Uh, so, you know, I I don't enjoy that life lesson as a theme. Um, but I have no idea to what degree that is. That is external Christian culture creeping into it. Or, or if that is authentic. So yep. this is going to have to just be set aside, I think. And a behind-the-screen yikes, mm -hmm. uh, which would not have been brought to my attention had I not paid attention to other creators. 
Um, when I said ethnics, pretty much all ethnic. Ethnic is ethnic, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, for example, the singing is uh, Bulgarian. Oh, that's right. It's like Bulgarian's women's choir or something, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and the cave painting practice of putting hands on the walls. I looked at that and went, that's very authentic. And the thing is, that is very authentic. It's very Aboriginal. In Australia, there are numerous... Um, there are numerous sites that are older than everything we've ever found in Europe <laughs> of these collections of hands. And don't worry, vandals have definitely taken to them with jackhammers because white people are monsters. <laughs> but the the specific practice of a kind of hall of wall of fame that the movie describes is a practice that Australian Aboriginals, I don't know the specific groups, have engaged in and the paper mentions that while that is not out of type with Inuit, it is not an established practice that they could say this definitely is a thing they would have done. Um, okay, so that one's questionable. Yeah. This... And it, uh, definitely like a, an extrapolation that you made because you really wanted to do the bare poor handprint thing over and over again as a theme in this movie, didn't you guys? And of course, the other thing is that given the time frame this the weird time frame this movie uses there's <laughs> no actual reason not to uh um say that they might have engaged in this practice so far back woolly mammoths are around we don't know those relics might well be lost um so but you know that comes with the problem of when you're representing both an ancient culture and uh, a culture that is also commonly marginalized. Any representation is treated as the representation and you're going to get the, as it were, greatest hits of any given culture. It's just like when a TV show wants to show you that they've gone to France. They put the Eiffel Tower in the fucking Man. background, even though there's vast swathes of France where you can't even see the Eiffel Tower. Comparatively, if uh, if, if they want to show you that they're coming to Australia, they show you Sydney Harbour or Uluru. Or there's nothing both. else in Australia. <laughs> Yes, or both. It's only a short trip after all. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is that the casting of the voice in this uh, is extremely native light. And I will talk more about that in our next section. Animation and making! Hey! Yeah, I was going to ask you about voices here because... Okay, I... <laughs> little kid is insufferable. It's... Mm -hmm. I don't know to what degree that is. The the child actor... I mean, child actors are pretty irritating at the best of times. Uh, but also, I don't feel like they had... I mean, they had to make the kid annoying. That's what the role is, also. Yep. I, it's just a questionable choice. But more than that, I don't like most of the acting from our main characters in this. Because it's such an emotional story. People should be fucking traumatized in this plotline. But the most you ever get is fairly basic mannish anger. And I just, I really want these to be uh, uh, color cross-cast actors so I don't wind up being mad at a bunch <laughs> of, of uh, marginalized people who, who got to be in a fucking Disney movie because at least they were that aware. So if it helps, there's uh -huh. one Inuit voice actor I could find. That's the narrator who, and I do apologize, this is a challenging name for me. I'm probably going to get it wrong and I'm going to rely on his surname afterwards, which was Angayakwak Oscar Kawagli. So hang on a minute. Um, the narrator is the middle brother in the narrative. In the far future. Okay, okay. It's, so it's the adult. Different, different voices. Yeah, okay. they got different voices. Uh, and in fact, you see at the very start in the framing of the framing, the first framing device, there is an old uh, man. Um, I would assume he is Yupik, which is the extraction that Kawagli is from, uh, who is speaking in an old language. Yeah, yeah. And then the English translation, tran um, and then the English translation comes in. This is legitimately cool because what Disney did was they didn't give him a script. They handed him the story That's and cool. said a native character is telling this story. Kawadli translated, tr no, Kawadli composed his version of that story in Inuit, sent it to them. They translated that into English and then sent it back to him to read the English version of it as well. Ah. So he is both the ancient and the new narrators in both languages. And 
he was a professor of Alaskan Inuit philosophy. Ooh. So, like, they did go to a good source for some of this. Which is, like, one of those asterisks of good faith. Because... Yeah. Well, once again, this feels like it was trying to be respectful, but we get that a lot from, uh... Well, Renaissance and post-Renaissance Disney, but that doesn't mean they don't fuck it up a whole bunch as well. Yeah, because the secondary thing that comes up here is... If you check, for example, the Wikipedia page, there's no criti- there's no entry criticism of voice acting or anything like that. It's just here are the voice actors. Yeah, it's all these famous names that you might recognize, and we celebrate the fact that we got a bunch of Canadian actors in this Alaskan movie. <laughs> and you could then make the hypothetical complaint. the The argument usually runs thus: It would be nice if Disney had had more Inuit talent on this work. Well, it's hard for Disney to find Inuit talent because there isn't that much that can operate at Disney's level. It's true, it's true. Though, we have we have broached this argument before, and what did we say back then? Disney are in a position to foster and create spaces for this kind of talent. You have all the fucking money, Disney. If it's not happening easily, make it happen. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the you know... The seemingly intractable, the seemingly intractable problem of why didn't they get more Inuit talent? It's hard, but they could do it. But it's hard. If they really wanted it, they'd fucking do it. And bear in mind, this is two thousand and three. The entire cast of Northern Exposure is looking for work. You can find <laughs> native actors. And, and by the way, I don't imagine. I don't imagine there are going to be native actors who are super mad that say Mohawk people or Mi'kmaq people were doing the job of Inuit people in the context of the alternative being Joaquin Phoenix. I, yeah. Uh, and the bear is going to become the Joker. And the actors they did get weren't that good. <laughs> I don't believe you couldn't have found Inuit or at, the, at least some variety of First Nations people who could have done as good a job as we're getting this. Because... No voice in this is remarkable for its for for the the complexity and the emotional delivery of its like you know the comedy characters are fine whatever don't care they're doing what they're there to do but like for for our emotional tent poles who we need you know Disney caliber actors for there's no fucking way these performances are worth uh, denying uh, an actor who is actually of this racial extraction. A chance to be in a Disney. And an added element here is that, like, I could find more Jewish actors involved in this than I could find native actors. I bet you could. Um, and there are a bunch of these names which are honestly not particularly stellar. I don't want I don't want to sit here and dunk on him, because the story of the guy is overall quite sad. But the middle brother, Danahi, is played by an actor called Jason Reyes. Um, who also was the stage play performer who did Simba. That's where I know that name from. It It's just it's just a bummer of a story, but at the same time, it's not like you brought out the big guns, because, you know, the oldest brother, Sitka, that was D.B. Sweeney, whose other previous roles include the main character from Dinosaur. Oh! Oh, right. Dinosaur's a Disney movie that was... Yeah, we've seen that. Yeah. It only took me, like, four episodes to forget that Dinosaur existed again. There is a lot of stuff in this movie's voice cast where there are definitely (sighs) people with talent. Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas are the two uh, moose. Oh, God, of course it's Rick Moranis. And they're doing a comedy bit from their earlier days as Canadians. Like, that is a big flashback to history for the Canadian audience. It's great. I, I find them quite endearing, and I find them doing a kid's version of this uh, uh, two slightly dim but good-natured people with power tools kind of vibe. Great. <laughs> like I said, the, the comedy characters are doing what they're here to do. I, I got no beef with them. I mm-hmm. only have beef with our emotional delivery. Yep. Um, Tanana, the old lady, uh, the, the, the medicine woman, I guess you'd call her. Um, she's played by Joan Copeland, who's like one of your old dame actresses who passed away from when we're recording this last month. Right. Um, and she was 
She was the younger sister of Arthur Miller, the guy who wrote The Crucible and The Death of a Salesman. No, different guy. Of, <laughs> uh, of Arthur Macon. Mm-hmm. Mac- Mac- I, don't, I don't know how you Albert say Albert Machen, who's a horror author. Thinking of a different guy. Who was from the 1800s. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was like, Jesus, she was older than I thought. But, uh, okay. Um, now I know I've heard her in other things. Her you have. You super have. Familiar. She, is, she is a classic old lady. Um, Otherwise, it's a lot of people who, if you watch a lot of dubbed anime, you'd recognize, oh and boy. possibly kids' cartoons you'd recognize. With my special, with my special shout out here <clears throat> to one of my favorite names. Whenever I see it, I'm always happy. Bumper Robinson is the Chipmunks. God, what a name! Wowie, imagine naming your child Bumper. I hope that's a nickname. Well, Bumper Robs, <laughs> Bumper Robinson is. You know what? He, here's where you'll know him from. Bumper Robinson is Meltdown from Transformers Animated, and also Portisee Powell. Uh huh. Yeah. So yeah. like, you know, the the guy is a kids' cartoon voice actor. He's really sure. quite good at his uh-huh. job. But yeah, that's that's your voice talent, broadly speaking. Um, if you're curious, this is thanks to these voice credits. I know that that bear is meant to be the bear who speaks in gibberish. Is meant to be Croatian. He's apparently saying stuff in Croatian. Oh, he's Croatian, not Russian. Yeah, I like. I, I got the, like, sound and vibe of the language kind of thing, but obviously I cannot tell Croatian from from any, any. other Slavic language, really, <laughs> yeah. when, especially when spoken at speed for comic effect. Yeah. I, I, I also liked our, our huge bear who did most of the talking in the, the, the bear waterfall scenes. Michael Clark Duncan. Who? Ah, I was gonna say! Not Kevin Michael Richardson. <laughs> no. The other enormous black voice. The other gigantic black voice actor with three names. <laughs> yes, Rip Michael Clark Duncan. He he was great. This is one of those roles. This is one of those roles where sadly he doesn't get to show off everything he can do because Michael Clark Duncan was very funny. Like, just very low-key <laughs> funny guy. I don't think I've ever heard him in a comedy role. Now I'm really disappointed. There's a Bruce Willis movie called The Whole Nine Yards, and he's in that. Oh, I've seen that. And he's really funny. He's the enormous bodyguard that Bruce Willis, ru- that Matthew Perry runs headlong into at one point it's and gets very quietly picked up and walked around like a toy. Anyway. Clearly not much of that stuck with me. It's not a good movie. Anyway. Um, yeah. I, I So I guess I want to call him out for, for doing a good job, but uh, otherwise, like, okay. You remember when I was gushing about Treasure Planet? Not mm-hmm. one episode ago. Yep. And I was just so impressed by uh, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Also, three names, but definitely not a huge black guy. Definitely a tiny white boy. <laughs> uh, but I, I was really impressed by his ability to, like, seriously make himself sound choked up. Like, that that kid could make you believe he was crying. Mm-hmm. And I kept waiting for that to come through in any one of our three brothers in this like or or even the kid like (laughs) there should have been so much emotionality in these vocal performances and they're so flat well you don't Mm. need to worry about that because we've always got the music and soundtrack to compensate oh christ see i'd forgotten i'd seen this movie before but i'd forgotten that phil collins shows up here had he had you really? Even after I made a joke about it last episode? <laughs> yeah. I I didn't know what oh, you were talking about. Man. I yeah, no, we we got Phil back. I guess they decided that that uh replacing actual musical numbers with inexplicable Phil Collins literally narrating what's on screen uh was was a win in Tarzan. Was not in fact the worst thing about that. Really one of the only really terrible things about that movie. It is a testament to the quality of Tarzan that it is the only Disney movie I can think of that becomes markedly improved when you remove something. I would, I I would deeply love to see an instrumental cut of of Tarzan. Maybe there's like a a dub in another language that doesn't have Phil in it. I don't know. That's probably too much to hope for. Mm. But uh, yeah, I I guess they disagreed that this was the worst choice they had ever made. Uh, and they they just thought they would do it again. I think he only he only actually performs one of the songs on this. Is that right? Well, as it happens, we have a quote here. Slowly, the bad news started to trickle down that I wouldn't be singing at all. I was a bit of a disappointment because I usually write songs that I sing myself. 
Yes, Phil Collins wrote all of the songs for yeah. this. Yeah. Oh no, you can tell his his stanky late nineties soft rock bullshit style is all over these songs. No matter who the vocalist is. Which were then performed by a Tina Turner. That was Tina Turner? Oh fuck me. The Blind Boys of Alabama. And the Bulgarian Women's Choir, who performed the song Transformation. Colin's lyrics for the song were first translated into the Inuit Eskimo language. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. That's translated his lyrics. So what they're singing is probably as bad as the rest of the lyrics in this movie. We just can't tell. Yeah, no, no, you know what? You know what? That's a great idea. You know what? Do that to all the other songs, please. I just, if I just, if only I didn't know what the lyrics were. I honestly thought those weren't lyrics. I thought that they were vocables. Yeah, I me too, thought, actually. I thought that whole performance with the Spirits music was literally, this is trying, like, originally I thought, oh, this is how people were making music without instruments. And so this is a a vocal performance of a type of instrument that he didn't have. This is really cool. I feel so cultural for knowing about these things that the Inuit people did that I definitely haven't bothered to fucking look up. It's not like they didn't have instruments, Alan. My point is, I thought that those were vocables. A performance music. Yeah. Uh, And then I had the feeling of like, oh, look at me, I'm so clever for knowing about this one tiny thing that definitely the Inuit people of Alaska were doing despite the fact that what I know of it comes from Virginia. So I feel so cultural and multinational. I'm so very clever. (laughs) And then I find out from Sideways that, no, it's Bulgarian. And also the performance is not even of an Inuit song. It's a Phil Collins song translated into Inuit. So don't get me wrong. It's an impressive amount of effort to go for a soft rock song by Phil Collins, of all people, a man who has committed crimes against movies but uh i'm still so mad that that's tina turner like i heard that and i was like once again i hope i'm not getting angry at at someone who actually belongs <laughs> in this kind of se- boy i'm not i mean okay i get still still definitely a marginalized uh group okay i'd you know i don't want to slag off a black woman in particular but uh oh the songs are so fucking misplaced in this yeah and it's not, once again, this is not, well, it's hard to find performances of quality up to... No, these are bad songs. These are bad. The music is incredibly bland. The performances are eh. The lyrics are brainlessly bad. And, ooh. I, I think better of Tarzan having seen this, because at, at least Tarzan sort of tried to... To say some words that weren't the just the most possible literal interpretation of whatever was on the screen at the time. But like, holy fucking shit. It was like they wrote the songs and then every shot during the song was just based on what Phil Collins was singing at the time. It's like they entirely based them on it. I uh, I just oh. want to clarify for anyone who's taking a guess and wondering to themselves. I wonder if yes, Fox writes songs. Yeah, no, and look, I'm not, I'm I'm not a successful songwriter. I uh, I mean, you know, I I wouldn't even particularly enjoy reading a lot of my own material a lot of the time. I wrote a lot of it when I was you know nineteen ish, but it's still better than what Phil Collins is doing here. There's at least some fucking poetry to it. Oh, the the fucking bear family one is the worst. <laughs> like, literally, he says a thing and then the bears do it on screen. Mm-hmm. Oh, this... I feel like this is probably a directorial issue more than anything. Because this is also the way that most of the rest of the film is. This film does not trust you for a goddamn moment to work anything out on your own. They have to spell out every plot beat Every realization, every there's e- every time something from the movie like ironically echoes something in the past, and you go, "Oh yeah, that happened." They then flash back to the thing, just in case you've forgotten the thing, complete with like the echoing voiceover and everything. So uh, let's talk about the directorial element mm-hmm. here, shall we? Yeah, who did this? Who was responsible for this? Uh, Blaze and Walker. 
Those aren't names I recognize. Have they done Disney's before? Yes, but never at this level of prominence. I see. Blaze got involved because... Uh, Blaze, by the way, a uh, veteran animator. Um, ah! Stepping into the directorial scene. Oh, no! Ooh, a story is beginning to take shape. <laughs> Who wanted the role because, quote, I wanted to animate bears. I get that. I... Look, the thing I won't pick fault with in this film is the animation. It's lovely. I don't adore the character design they've done on people, but I feel like they half-assed that a little bit because they wanted to get to the bear stuff. The original concept for this movie and the original plot was going to be King Lear with bears, focusing on a blind parent bear with three daughter bears. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, Fox is not Shakespearean. No, but I know King Lear. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I know, we, we, okay. Let's see how well I remember it. You don't need to go through this. The point is that they started with an incredibly bleak story. They certainly, <laughs> okay. Yeah, like the the climax of that is there's there's like one good daughter. Yeah. And uh because the parent is too soft-hearted and and can't bring themselves to mistrust the two evil daughters, uh everyone gets fucked in the end. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and then the parent dies. Yeah. Uh but they had the script, they sketched it out, and then they all went on a trip to Alaska to look at bears for a month. Oh, so there were no bears at first. No, no, they were going to be bears. There were bears. It was just like, we're going to do a okay. movie with bears. Oh, it's just going to be like Lion King or whatever, but with bears. Yeah, we're going to do King Leo with bears, so let's go to Alaska to look at bears for a month. Uh-huh. And then while they were there, they started doing storyboarding and uh-huh. realized they had no idea how to do a story like that in Disney. Yeah, no kidding. Also, uh, I don't know if you necessarily should. Which that doesn't in- seem like a story kids would enjoy. So it involved a lot of changing this character into that character and that character into this character and steadily progression, like, you know, game of telephone kind of transformations of the narrative until at one point, like, the the King Leah was about, was going to be the love interest of the character that had evolved out of one of the daughters. <laughs> like, not a good scene. And the two directors literally went, we need help finding this story. <laughs> So they turned to Tab Murphy. Now that's a name I do recognize. Tab Murphy is responsible for co-writing the screenplays for The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Tarzan, and Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Ooh, that's a real mixed bag. Yes, but it's also very strong in the I will get something done (laughs) realm. Uh, You may be right about that. Uh, Yeah, so what we got out of it was this, with the only definite point that they had going into giving Tab the script was, the dude has to be a bear at the end. The dude has to be a bear, yeah. Yeah, and that's pretty much, so basically this entire movie was made by a script doctor, effectively. Yeah, you know, somehow that's not surprising, especially the end, which like, with all the- Weirdly rushed! Yeah, all the complexity that goes into this story with with the middle brother trying to murder Kenai right up until the end. Uh, there's uh, like, it's like three lines of dialogue <laughs> to to wrap up this entire story. There's about four seconds for Kenai to decide, oh shit, no, I need to be a bear forever. There's a lot of what we would refer to as story mechanics, where you can tell that someone who needs to string stuff together has come in and done something at the start of each sequence to make sure it works with a very strong overtone of look someone else like you can always think of a better way to do this but i have a time limit and a budget limit and maybe i can only use these voice actors for this many minutes and everything is being done under a very tight constraint and the result is that brother bear has at least three points where the story is about to go into what is very clearly a challenging scene for a writer and instead takes a hard swerve into the simplified summary of that (laughs) that you would use on a second instance. Oh boy, you're not kidding. So the first time he wakes up as a bear, the the medicine lady's just there and she knows what happens, she understands it, she explains it, and also there's a communication barrier between him and her, so... He can't complicate the the information dump by asking questions that would get them off in the weeds. Right. She's just going to go, okay, cool, bish, bash, bosh, go. And in fact, then she literally vanishes, implying that she might never really have been there in person in the first place. And yes. it might be some mystic shit. Yes. So just, you can't question anything about this. Go, get moving. Plot has to happen. 
she attributes agency to the spirit's behavior, which isn't necessary. Like, we don't need to know why the spirits did this. We can kind of just infer it looking at what just happened. Anyway. <laughs> we also, like, literally see our, our dear departed brother, who's definitely not an angel. He's a hawk. Sorry, he's an eagle. And that's different. Mm-hmm. Um, like, we literally see him do it. So, we, you know, I guess it's good that she knows it was him. But, you know, Kenai kind of knows it too. He was there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway. But you're right, and, and they, they extremely pull that again uh, when it's time for the big reveal that the, the bear Kenai kills at the big beginning is, in fact, Coda's lost mother. Yep. Which, once again, not a spoiler. You will work it out immediately. And the movie keeps treating it like it was hard to work out. Which is what would happen if, say, for example, a script doctor didn't know which of these three sequences would be the one the director decided to lean on and wrote a treatment for each of these three sequences with a little asterisk saying, don't use this one if you're using the other ones. Because again, their job is not necessarily to do the perfect version of a holistic movie. It's scene to scene. Do I get this done? How do I get this done? I need these pieces in these positions and I need to mention these plot points. Bam. And... Similarly, the, the that big reveal, which again, very challenging scene. It could be immensely traumatizing. And by going into montage and thanks Phil Collins, you actually wind up with a big ambiguity. Yeah, I um this is the one Phil Collins sings about characters' feelings, literally, uh, that I can almost forgive, because I don't know how I don't know how you do this scene. Otherwise, or at least I don't know how you do this scene within a minute or two, otherwise. Because you, you're in the unfortunate situation where Kenai's never brought up the no, I'm not really a bear thing to he, Coda before now. He has tried to. He saw, like, he's mentioned it to other creatures, but he never tries to bring it up to Coda. Hmm. Uh, which is weird, because I feel like you could have had that. Like, if any character in this movie was going to laugh it off and be like, yeah, sure, okay, you're a human, I believe you. The kid works for that. But, as with that script doctoring effect, if in the first stages of the movie you have that line dropped, all the talk later about how scary humans are doesn't come up. It still works if you assume the kid doesn't believe him. But but he would still do something. He would still relate to it. He's like, oh yeah, that's what you are. Look at that. They're horrible. I mean, you also could have cut those bits because they're so heavy. And imagine, imagine talent. Imagine if the bear you looked at and thought was a monster thought you were a monster too well it's it's not even like wrong no it's just so unsubtle i would also want to point out that these are disney movies which have occasionally featured such things as a frog driving a car so like i don't want to sit here and go well this is this is pitched a little low but I'm just pointing to the storytelling mechanisms in question, where if you had a better handle on what was going to be important in Act 3, you'd develop it better in Act 1. And if you did a better job of conveying this information with your tone and your blocking and your pacing and your character reactions, you wouldn't have to tell us everything that matters. And then tell us the thing that it relates to earlier in the movie so we don't forget about that. Like, And, you know, there's bits where they do do this well and then they do the stupid shit anyway. Like, when Kenai is realizing, based on Coda's story, that, like, the first time he connects the dots and, you know, they animate him being like, <gasps> like, the terrible moment is dawning upon him and you're like, oh, oh, okay, he's finally picked up on this thing that we've realized since the beginning of the movie. And then they do a flashback as well. Yeah. And then they keep having Coda tell the story, and then they do a flashback again. To return to my point about the storytelling introducing an ambiguity. Yes, sorry. There is a point there where we have uh, Coda telling Kenai, you know, your mom's dead. But there are two versions of that story, and we don't know which one comes out. And it, it introduces a new ratchet to the tension because he could have said, hey, I happen to know your mother is dead. Kid runs off upset. And now he has a bigger secret 
because if the kid returns after that, then you have the added element of, oh no, now the kid's going to find out that I killed her, I, I killed the kid's mother. And this is not made clear. And also, the story doesn't have a good mechanism for it to be anything else. Because is he going to say, all right, look, just so you know, I was a human and the spirit shapeshifted me into this. But before I did that, I murdered your mother. Like, that doesn't seem to be the story he told. And if he did, then Kena coming back is even more fucked up. Because, Koda. sorry, and Coda coming back is even more fucked up. Because it's not a matter of, uh, um, you know, oh, we're brothers, we get along even if we disagree. No, this is, this, this is intensely traumatizing. Yeah, the story's emotional core is stupid. And for what it's worth, yeah. I don't think it is very ambiguous. I think we are meant to understand that he told the whole story. I think that's why the dialogue we do get leading into it is it's kind of about a man, it's kind of about a bear, it's mostly about a monster. I assume it's supposed to be a complete confession. And the reason that we cut to the... Well, not even cut. The reason that we dub Phil Collins over this conversation so we can't hear most of it is because this conversation would be ridiculously complex. Because you have to deal with the fact that obviously the kid wouldn't believe him at first. This is why they should have introduced the shape-shifting idea to the kid way earlier on and just had it be something that he brushed off and, that, like, you know, uh, uh, the crazy story was true all along and this proves it. I assume it's supposed to be a complete confession because also at the end, Coda doesn't seem all that weirded out by him turning back into a human. Which is equally stupid. Yeah. Like, I, I assume without any introduction of the shape-shifting idea to Coda, he's just fucking terrified at that point and he flees. Mm -hmm. Like, he has no reason to wait for a moment and be like, oh, maybe this human means no harm to me. He hasn't learned to understand humans. Only Kenai has learned to understand bears. It doesn't go both ways in this scenario. I, you know, I'm, I'm saying it's probably this because it wouldn't make sense otherwise, but it's pretty bad at making sense. As you say, they have this, this scene where he learns that his new adopted brother was the one to kill his mother and like, okay, they were different species at the time, but I don't feel like that means much to you when you're like, what is this kid? Seven? Eight? Maybe inhuman to, it wouldn't mean shit to you when you're a little kid who's got a dead parent, right? So the fact that they resolve his upset with this by having the two comedy mooses come past and do a skit about how, you know, you get angry at your brother but you love each other so you make up and that's all it takes to to turn him onto a, a path of resolution is some bullshit. Some hard bullshit. In the end, I think that that's the grand thesis we have for this movie, which is don't murder people's mothers and expect them to forgive you. <laughs> I also don't really like the... Uh, okay, we, we start off with Kenai uh, very much insisting he did nothing wrong. And he learns that he did something wrong because he learns that the bear he killed, you know, that was somebody's family as well. And I just perpetuated the cycle of violence. Whatever, whatever, whatever. But I feel like what he actually should have learned is it's never okay to compensate for the fact that you feel inadequate and guilty at ultimately being kind of responsible for your brother's death by responding with violence. And like, that's a very human mistake to make. It's an understandable flaw, but like, that's, that's the thing you have to actually learn is wrong to, to make up for what you did, right? It's not, it's wrong to kill bears because uh, bears are people too. Well, I mean, he also has a wildly inappropriate vision of what a bear is. Well, that's also true, yes. But also, uh, weirdly, the death practices as represented in the movie are apparently really quite legit. Oh, good. Because I like that, the whole, like, uh, you know, in pretty much all the cases of deaths here, we don't have bodies. So what we have instead is the burning of personal effects. Mm -hmm. But uh, also, um, if you go out hunting and you get killed by something while you're out hunting, mm -hmm. it is the responsibility of the eldest son of your family to take revenge. Wow. That's, that is a not uncommon in your practice. The idea that, 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 uh, Kenai would go and kill the bear that killed his brother is quite 
on Mark. So the whole moral of this movie is that practice is wrong? Well, I would I would say that it seems they were instead threading the needle alongside that, which is the bear is not responsible for the death. Kenai is. And therefore taking revenge, for, like you say. Okay, is, okay. Like, I think that's how it's trying to thread that needle. Because it's very much framed as the reason that it was wrong is because it hurt Coda, though. Oh, yeah, and that's where we get a bit more Protestant with the whole, you know, ah, but if you perpetuate the, if you perpetuate the cycle of violence, don't you see that makes you just as bad as the violent? You know, this is, you know, clearly there can never be retaliation against evil and we must let them just <laughs> do their own thing because otherwise we will become just as bad as them. Just as like how if you swat a spider, you become a spider. Anyway. Well, I might become a bear, apparently. <laughs> That would be dope. <laughs> oh, that would be kind of dope. I think Ellie would be scared. For a bit. He doesn't like other dogs. Yeah. <laughs> but you probably look like a human to him. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I like that idea. The... Yeah, I don't know. It's it's very questionable. Like, there is a great life lesson here about, uh, uh, you know, essentially toxic masculinity is the entire problem with, with Kenai's whole personality and his brother's. And the expressions of this almost lead both of them to their mutual destruction. Um, but the movie doesn't seem to realize that's what's going on. There is also a element at work there of um, a very alternate vision of spirituality, right? Because normally when in one of these Disney movies, something that's like nature starts expressing some Christian bullshit, I'm first to harp on it. Whereas the spiritual practices of the Inuit seems to think that, no, really, animals also think this. And so animals believing in the great spirits makes sense because the great spirits are there. They're part of the world. We all just happen to know that and relate to them. So it's kind of, you know, yeah, bears believe in the great spirit and salmon believes in the great spirit and everything that eats everything else believes in the great spirit because the problem here isn't hunting. The problem here isn't isn't um, killing. The problem here is reasons and causes and revenge and whether or not you're doing it for the right reason. I mean, you're right about that, and I guess that does uh, put a new dimension on bears of people too, which I shouldn't have been so quick to dismiss. On the other hand, salmon are clearly not people in this movie. Mm. Well, like, we never talked to one. All the rest of the wildlife is, but so, well, also they okay. Um, bears are illustrated differently. Yeah. When we're not uh, Kenai. Yeah, yeah. Right, but salmon look inhuman no matter what. Yeah, so we need to watch Sister Salmon. It's a different movie, folks. <laughs> this, uh, th- this interwoven spirituality and different vision of all of these layers of these things, um, it, it is interesting, um, to me because the whole bears are people too thing, again, ethnic is ethnic. That's a Finnish thing. Yeah, not specifically bears in this case. Yeah. Like. But just the idea of, like, bears are a special exalted form of wildlife and you don't fuck with bears. That's from Finland. That's not it is. Alaskan. But that's not what we have here. No. Like, what we have here is definitely all, uh, all creatures are, uh, as important as human creatures in some way or another. And... Uh-huh. Except salmon, I guess. <laughs> I still find it very sus that this is another, another movie where animals are people. But fish are still okay to kill. Well, we'll get to Finding Nemo eventually. We won't. It's Pixar. Still, that said, when we're negotiating about the spirituality of Salmon, we have clearly run out of useful things to talk about. So I'd like us to move on now to the very brief jaunt through Whatever Land. I'm trying to make this a positive Whatever Land. I'm trying to think of nice things to say. You know what? This movie has gorgeous scenery. Yeah. Top to bottom, this is delightful to look at. I wish I didn't have to listen to most of it. Lots of traditional non-CG animation too. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, I, a sense, I assume what is the same technology as Tarzan yeah. with the, the moving backgrounds. Yeah, this is the movie that got them the award that the technology in Tarzan <laughs> introduced. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is... <laughs> this is the last really good looking traditionally animated Disney we're going to see for a while. Yeah, because this is also, I mean, I, I feel like they had high hopes for this movie, mm-hmm. uh, but we're supposed to be in whatever land. The mammoths seem inappropriate timeline wise. 
I mean, they did open at the beginning by saying it was a time when the man still walked the earth, so... Yeah, and I'm not I'm not sitting here going like, well, fucking moose are weird then, aren't they? Um, <laughs> it did, it really had me wonder about when these particular animals appear in the fossil record, because everything else looks exactly like it looks now. Yeah, and there's a part of my brain that's like, I'm reasonably certain bears weren't finished yet. Like, they were still in the oven a little at that point, but, you know, I... Or, um, it may just be that we don't understand exactly how late mammoths were around. Because, like, the Americas had mammoths for very decent I, stretch into early human, right? I am quite familiar with how long we've had mammoths around. You are? Okay. Mammoths were around while the pyramids were being built. Yeah, I don't know when the pyramids were built. Well, let me give you a hint. Humans were around. <laughs> I, yeah, okay, no. I know that, that humans and mammoths were, were contemporaneous. Yeah. I just don't know, because, like, humans have been around for a surprisingly long time. So all I'm thinking about is, like, how much overlap there is. Yeah. I believe it's generally accepted that humans extincted mammoths, right? And climate change and dietary shifts. We were a factor. Okay, okay. But the reason... We were the predator they were rendered unable to contend with. Yeah. But the reason I say they seem inappropriate is because what we are looking at here is Inuit practices. And the paper mentions that it is a little out of time and it places the Inuit culture at right. the wrong point in time. Of course. Humans spent plenty of time with mammoths. Specifically Inuit humans, not so much. Yeah, we don't... I, I, I don't know. The paper doesn't go in depth on that one. But... I know that with a lot of these um, indigenous groups, there are effectively you know epochs of different groupings and different relationships and different relationships to culture and technology. So for all I know, Inuit might refer to a group that is quote unquote recent, like it might be a mere two or three thousand years old. But that still means that the presence of mammoths is a bit what, and I'm I'm absolutely sure, absolutely sure that if we're talking about mammoth periods then we should have seen other megafauna and we should have seen some variety of mega moose. Because, you know what, Elderland point, these moose are tiny. They're so small. I, like, I'm looking at about halfway through and I'm thinking like, okay, maybe Kenai's a bigger bear than I thought. He doesn't seem that big because, like, Coda's right next to him and he's a, he's a little baby bear. He's just a little guy. He doesn't seem like that big a bear and I've seen a full-grown-ass male moose now. Mm-hmm. And they're absurdly large, like way bigger than a sort of smallish bear. When I was a kid, I had a fact book which had the wonderful fact of one in three road accidents in Canada involve a moose. Something that I trotted out <laughs> for years. And I grew up one liner. And growing up, I always thought it was kind of just a funny, you know, off the cuff kind of thing to mention. Because I never really passed what it means when a road accident involves a moose. I kind of figured people would swerve off the road. And then I got to be an adult, and I made friends with people from Canada. And they informed me that, no, if a moose hits your car, it's walking away and your car might not. Like, moose are very big and they are very scary, and they can handle a lot of punishment. <laughs> yeah, we never see the the the, the moose uh, from this movie next to the Michael Clark Duncan bear. Yeah. But that's the point where I was like, oh no, Kenai's a very... Yeah. Kenai's a very small bear. Kenai's a small boy. He's, he's just a little guy. Yeah, he's just a little guy. This this is a full-size ass bear, which is extra funny because he's a black bear. I, so he should be smaller than the brown bears, but you know, whatever. I assume they just colored him black because they wanted him to stand out of it compared to everyone And else. he's voiced by Michael Clark Duncan. Yeah. There's a nice, what a, a nice point I can give this movie in the Whateverland section. Uh, we have a lot of bear designs who are distinct and you can tell them from one another. And no one felt the need to hyper-feminize the girl bears. Yeah. Like, there's one of them who looks a decent bit girlier than the... She's like the young hot bear who's just getting into a relationship. So she looks a bit femme. But, like, when, when you get the flashback to Coda's mother and she's drawn as, as a human bear rather than a bear bear seen from the outside. Because when we first see her, she looks very, you know, animalistic. And when we see her in the flashback scene, she's drawn like the rest of the bears are. So, yeah, little Easter egg there, I guess. Whatever. God, now the flashback has a reason to exist, and I hate that even more. Anyway, and she doesn't look hyper-feminized, and none of the other ones do. It's just, it's nice and refreshing. 
We don't need to stick eyelashes on the girl bears, so you know they're the hot bears that you want to fuck. So you you managed to make this a positive point while still just having the snidest tone about it. <laughs> hey, I'm doing my best. You're just a little guy. <laughs> Look, I will say, finally, for what I have in whatever land, I would just like to point out that we came so close to hashtag not all bears. They did. Well, I mean, he literally says that, right? Not all have, bears. But he doesn't have a hashtag. Oh, <laughs> see, that makes all the difference. This is 2003 talent. Twitter would be along for there were no hashtags. months. Anyway. I think that might actually be close to the year that Twitter started, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know the exact year, but it, it would have had to be right around there. Hey, you want to talk about capitalism? Ah, <laughs> uh, yep, all right. There's no way this turns out well. Real, not really, uh... You're, you're really winding up for disappointment here. Okay, so what are you going to the budget? Above or below Treasure Planet? Okay, here's the thing. This is clearly an expensive Disney movie. It looks very nice. They even, like, animated a bunch of outtakes for the, uh... Well, not even outtakes. They animated a bunch more comedy bits for the end credits. This does not have the feeling of being stretched for budget the same way that it has the feeling of being stretched for writing talent. Um, but... Treasure Planet was very expensive, so I think it might have cost marginally less. Uh, I feel like we're going to get close numbers, but maybe a little less. Treasure Planet cost a hundred and fifty-two million. Uh huh. This cost forty-six. Wow! Oh my god! Okay, this looks incredible for for that budget. This looks great. That's that's uh, beginning of the Renaissance numbers. It That's cost, like fucking Little Mermaid numbers. It cost a third of what Treasure Planet did. <laughs> and some of the things they did to save money, not wild about. Uh, particularly, they siloed voice acting for this, for almost everyone. Oh! Huh! That explains so damn much. Yeah, uh, um, the, the Moosin, they were They're both in, in the, the same room. room yeah, but everyone else siloed off. Oh, God. You know what? I take it back. It does feel cheap, just not in the way I expected it to. That really makes a lot of the vocal performances make more sense. That's the kind of scenario you get in fucking video game dubs, where they just send you a list of fucking lines and expect you to work it out from context. This is bullshit. Uh, what do you, uh, what do you reckon the take was like, Fox, compared to Treasure Planet? I don't like that you asked me that question, because this also, I mean, okay, uh, I don't think this made a lot of money, but having cost that much, I think it was definitely financially successful, uh, particularly by comparison to something like Treasure Planet, which had a big oof. Um, I mean, it could make as much as Treasure Planet and still be like four times ahead of its budget. That sucks. Oh dear. All right, let's say more or less the same. <laughs> it made $250 million. That's only about $100 million more than Treasure Planet. $150 million more than Treasure Planet. <laughs> oh, dear. This this movie was an absolute success. This movie um, almost resulted in a TV series. It got a spin-off um, secondary movie on the v on the DVD VHS market. Yeah, that wasn't special at this point in time, though. This was the Disney sequel boom. Behind, behind the... Behind, Priority was an issue with the sequel boom. Who got a sequel next was based on who would have made the most money at the right time. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I should go back and check out the years that all the sequels came out, actually. We'll do that once we've run out of the good movies in this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, uh, this movie also spun off to a bunch of video games that were apparently successful. Really? On the GBA. Huh. Can't imagine that. That said, the critical oh, reception. Shit, garbage. So I, I often look at the critical reception and see if there's anything interesting to say there. And in this case, they all more or less said exactly the same thing: that this movie wasn't great. Its Rotten Tomatoes rating is thirty-seven percent, which puts it at less than half of what Treasure Planet gets. I think that's fair. But I think the fact that the critical reception was so negative overall, mostly in the big meh category of negative like no one was thinking this is terrible they were just like 
this isn't up to standards of Disney. This isn't a particularly engaging movie. This is not going to reinvigorate Disney for anyone who who felt the shine coming off. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it made five times its budget. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's going to do it. So uh, I just wanted to highlight one particular criticism by Stephen Holden of the New York Times. Did he also call Phil Collins a fucking hack? Who said that the movie was too similar to The Lion King. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what he was watching. Oh shit, that's not the right one either.